Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Crooked Conversations is brought to you by Blue Bottle. Out with the old, in with the new, John. Finally. That's the mantra this time of year, isn't it? God, that delivery—that delivery felt so fresh. You think so? That was such. I a thought good, it was very. Now do it again, it was... but throw it away. Keep reading. I <laughs> <laughs> with the old in with the no, new. We're, John. No, we're keeping it. We're not doing That's this again. That's the mantra again. this time oh, of year, right? Goodness. That's the mantra this time of year, right? That's the mantra this time of year. Upgrade your coffee routine with Blue Bottle Coffee. Blue Bottle Coffee provides the most delicious coffee in the world right to your door. I'm drinking some right now. Your Blue Bottle Coffee is roasted and shipped to your home within 48 <laughs> hours of placing your order, so the beans arrive at peak freshness. These beans are practically mooing on the plate, John. <laughs> One sip of Blue Bottle Coffee will make you realize that you've been drinking <laughs> subpar coffee your entire life. <laughs> After trying Blue Bottle for the first time, I can honestly say there's coffee... <laughs> And there's Blue Bottle Coffee. It's not TV, it's coffee, John. What's the difference? For starters, Blue Bottle has an insane dedication to coffee. They're really going mental. They are unwell. Yeah. They're so dedicated to their coffee. They wake up at 5 a.m., watch Fox and Friends, and then make coffee. That's how crazy they are. (laughs) (laughs) They search the planet far and wide to (laughs) What is going on? They search the planet far and wide to secure exclusive relationships with independent growers. They're probably not searching the oceans, (laughs) you know. All over the world to source only the most delicious and sustainable coffee in the universe. And nobody takes freshness as seriously as Blue Bottle. That's why they roast and ship your coffee beans within 48 hours of roasting. So they arrive at peak freshness. Now we're just being repetitive. Are you worried about flavor? Don't be. Stop worrying. You're going crazy with the worry. You're worrying yourself sick over the flavor. (laughs) (laughs) Take Blue Bottle's coffee match quiz to find the perfect coffee just for (sighs) you. Okay, sure. Man, what a... a what a decade it's been. From, huh? from blends to... A Thanks for listening to our podcast. Now go to our sponsor and take their coffee quiz. What a society. Hurry. <laughs> hurry and, to, and you better hurry. You don't, do not waste any time. Don't sleep on this. Hurry to bluebottlecoffee.com slash convos for $10 off your first coffee subscription order. That's bluebottlecoffee.com slash convos. Bluebottlecoffee.com slash convos. Hey, this is DeRay, the host of Pod Save the People, and you're listening to Cricket Conversations. On today's episode, I talked to former Secretary of Education John King, who's currently leading the Education Trust, and we talk about the state of public education, what to look forward to in 2018, and what to pay attention to moving forward. The school-to-prison pipeline really describes a systematic failure on the part of society to support our young people that takes students from school into incarceration. And it doesn't have to be that way. Hope you enjoy it. What happened in in the ed space over the past year? You know, I, I worry about the way we talk about education and, and, and the public conversation because so much of the news right now is about Russia or about the other sort of wild things that are happening at the federal level. So the education stuff sort of gets subsumed in these larger conversations. So can you help us sort of tease tease it out a little bit better? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, where I'd start is... Um, with kind of the tone in the country and what that means for kids. You know, Brittany and I were at a school, a D.C. high school, a middle school, um, a few weeks ago talking with students. And, you know, we talked with a group of young people who really are experiencing the, the 
trauma that comes with the environment we're in. You know, there were a set of young people who can't see their families because of the travel ban that's directed against people of Muslim faith. There were a set of kids who are concerned about the administration revoking DACA, and they're worried about whether or not they will be deported, whether or not their families will be deported. Uh, Kids who are worried about violence in the community, but also the violence that they see on television, um, you know, the mass shootings. And so there's just this palpable sense of fear that worries me a lot. Um, And then alongside that, you have all the public policy problems from, you know, from the very start of this administration. They revoked protections for transgender students. They revoked protections for victims of sexual assault. Uh, They have put forward a budget that would eliminate federal funding for after-school and summer programs. It would eliminate federal funding for professional development for teachers. Um, They've given over higher education policymaking to predatory for-profit higher ed institutions. So it's just one thing after another this year. And, you know, it's why it's so important for folks like you, folks like me, to work on um, trying to organize people to insist on different policies at the federal level and also to insist on different policies at the state and local level. I I hadn't heard about um, uh, the budget defunding after-school programs. Can you talk about that? I hadn't heard that until right now. Sure, yeah. So this was in the... uh, 45th president's budget proposal to Congress. One of the proposals was to um, get rid of funding for the 21st century schools program, which supports after school and summer programs for students. Um, It's exactly the wrong direction. We should be putting more resources into after school and summer programming for low-income students. Uh, But I think it reflects their values. Was there a rationale for why you, why they thought defunding after school made sense? Well, I think, you know, this is part of their um, sort of broader agenda of shrinking the federal government, shrinking um, the investments that the federal government makes in low-income communities. And, you know, sometimes on some of these budget issues, they've raised questions about... Uh, the effectiveness of particular funding streams, but I often think that's a distraction. You know, surely there are ways to make um, federal programs more effective, and we're all open to that, and that's a good conversation to have in a, in a bipartisan, nonpartisan way. Uh, but unfortunately, they, they've used that sometimes as a cover to say, well, let's just eliminate these various programs. Got it. I hadn't... Um... I didn't know that. What should we be looking forward to next year? Like, what are the fights we should be paying attention to? What are the issues that we should be paying attention to? You talked about DACA and, and the Dreamers. You talked about after-school programming. Um, is there anything else that we should be mindful of, just in case it doesn't make the national conversation? Yeah, you know, I think um, one of the key questions will be what happens with children's health insurance over the next few weeks. Um, currently, uh, states are planning on winding down uh, the CHIP program, which covers um, more than 9 million kids. Um, 
And they're counting on Congress and the administration finding a way to fund that program going forward. And so if that doesn't happen, you're going to see kids lose their health care. And we know what the consequences of that will be. I mean, you saw this as a teacher. I saw this as a teacher and principal. When kids don't have access to health care and they're sick, they're missing school, they're not able to focus on learning, their family members often um, then are burdened with trying to solve those health problems out of pocket, which then can have a devastating financial impact on a family. So uh, that's one issue that we should be watching closely over the next few weeks. You know, over the next year, we know Congress is beginning conversations about reauthorizing the Higher Education Act, um, 1965 law that set up a whole system of trying to get resources to the highest need students to be able to go to college, uh, including um, what today we, we call the Pell Grant program. And unfortunately, um, the current proposals in Congress uh, seem designed to give even more opportunity to for-profit higher ed institutions that are predatory, that are misleading students and taking advantage of them. Um, And it's a missed opportunity. So my hope would be that we'll see discussion of that law that actually is bipartisan and that leads us to a law that focuses on investing in low-income students, increasing Pell Grant funding, and investing in completion because we know too many students start college and never finish. In fact, uh, for African-American students, about four out of 10 students who start college um, finish with a degree six years later. For Latino students, it's about five out of 10. And for white students, it's about six out of 10. So we have a lot of work to do to make sure that folks who start actually finish. Four out of 10 is not good. No, no. And the sad thing is oftentimes for students, they, you know, if they start college and they don't finish, they can end up actually worse off because then they've got debt that they can't pay because they don't have a degree and they're just stuck. I had no clue. That's sort of wild. Now, one of the, you recently wrote an op-ed in the Baltimore Sun about the school-to-prison pipeline. And, and when you were on the pod before, we talked about this idea of what it means to get a first chance because so many people haven't even gotten that, let alone a second chance. Why did you write that piece? Like, how's your thinking changed about the school-to-prison pipeline and what can we do about it? And can you explain what it is for people that have heard the term but, like, don't couldn't actually sort of explain it to their friends? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, really what, what the term tries to describe is the problem that things that happen inside of our uh, P-12 through 12 system lead students to end up incarcerated. So you think about... Uh, the fact that African-American students are disproportionately suspended from school. So, for example, African-American students make up about 18% of the kids in pre-K, but 48% of the kids suspended from pre-K, four-year-olds suspended from school. So you get suspended starting in the earliest grades. You get suspended, you're missing school, your academic performance declines, you get in more trouble. Many schools today, unfortunately, will refer school-based discipline incidents to law enforcement. In fact, we showed in the civil rights data collection that we did at the education department that there are 1.6 million students who go to a school 
where there is a law enforcement officer but no school counselor. So kids are getting referred to law enforcement. Then they get into the juvenile justice system, and disproportionately young people involved in the juvenile justice system end up incarcerated as adults. So the school-to-prison pipeline really describes a systematic failure on the part of society to support our young people that takes students from school into incarceration. And it doesn't have to be that way. What's the rationale for suspending a four-year-old? Like, what? How does that even happen at the scale with which you describe? Well, you got a couple things going on. One is um, there are sometimes incidents that happen in school where where it's unsafe, right? And you saw that, um, you know, in your experiences in school districts, right? There are kids who, um, for a variety of reasons, make very bad decisions and are a threat to themselves or their peers. And so, understandably, that's a place where folks want to get the student out of the situation. And sometimes that means um, using suspension as a strategy. Unfortunately, that type of strategy then gets applied to incidents that definitely don't need to involve removing students from school. So it gets used for um, disrespecting a teacher or... Uh, refusing to follow directions, or, uh, you know, ironically, cutting class. So a student misses class, and then the response is to send them home for for a day or multiple days. And so this tendency to use suspension as a sort of a teaching method, I think, is is largely mistaken. And what we really should be doing is trying to get at What's the cause of the behavior and how do we address that? For some kids, it's that they've experienced trauma. We ought to get them the socio-emotional support they need, the counseling they need, potentially the mental health services they need. Uh, For other kids, they're reacting to a lack of um, order in the school environment and, and they don't feel safe. And so they act out because they don't feel safe themselves. So we should be doing things to create a safe, supportive environment in schools, things like restorative justice programs that help students learn good strategies for dealing with their own emotions and their peers. Um, So there's a lot we could be doing instead, but unfortunately people over-rely on exclusionary discipline. And it's sort of an extension of the sort of zero-tolerance philosophy that emerged in schools and in how the society approach policing for a long time as well. Is there a part of the country or a school system or a district that is doing this work well to end the school-to-prison pipeline, or is it across the country we just all need to be doing it better? Um, you know, both. We all need to be doing it better. I think even the places that have made progress would say they, they know they need to do better. Um, but I think about a place like uh, Broward County in Florida, the superintendent there, uh, Bob Runcie, really prioritized trying to combat the school-to-prison pipeline, trying to reduce suspensions and expulsions and also reduce referrals to law enforcement. And they invested in counseling and training for teachers, and uh, they've seen very significant reductions in exclusionary discipline and referrals to law enforcement because of policy choices that they made. 
We'll be back with John King, former Secretary of Education and current leader of the Education Trust, after this break. Crooked Conversations is brought to you by Quip. Quip. Let's be honest. Can we be honest for a second, Let's John? Let's do it. You're supposed to brush your teeth for two minutes twice a day. But do you? Do you, John? Um, now that I have the Quip, I'll, you know, I wait for it to buzz three times. The answer is yes, no, or maybe. <laughs> That's true. Well, you need... <laughs> <laughs> you need Quip either way. Regardless, you need Quip. The electric toothbrush that looks like it was designed by Apple and cleans like pre- so the battery runs out um, and cleans like premium electric brushes, but without the high price. But and but this version, this Quip toothbrush still has an actual button on it. Like having a button is such a fucking crime, huh? What's going new, on? Apple? You have to install new software on the Quip every five minutes. Yep, and then it slows down. Quip. <laughs> Quip's the new electric toothbrush that packs just the right amount of vibrations into an ultra-slim design. John, what, what do you think about these, the right amount of vibrations? Um, well, I think that when you pack them into an ultra-slim design with guiding pulses to simplify better <laughs> brushing, you can do it at a fraction of the cost of the bulkier brushes. So you're a fan of vibrations in a slim design? I'm a fan of the mount that goes right on your mirror, fitting what? seamlessly into your daily routine. What was that about mounting the slim vibrations? <laughs> Quip also offers an optional subscription plan, delivering new brush heads on a dentist-recommended three-month schedule for just $5, including free shipping worldwide. This is more vulgar than Trump's tweet about North Korea and the button. Quip's backed by a network of over 10,000 dental professionals, including dentists, hygienists, and dental students. Uh, You know what, Quip? I really like the product, but uh, those students aren't professionals yet, all right? They're not professionals yet. Yeah, just... We can't just throw the word professional around. With Quip, you don't have to worry about getting new brush heads or toothpaste. They're delivered right to your door on schedule so you replace your brush on time and have better oral hygiene at an affordable price with the sleekest design you've ever seen for an electric toothbrush. Quip starts at just $25. And right now, when you go to getquip.com slash crookedconvos to get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That was half a sentence, but yeah, didn't you still even- get it. Didn't fix, didn't have a full sentence for us. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash crooked convos. We like the quip. It's cool. You should get it. It's spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash crooked convos. Go get quip. Crooked Conversations is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter. A fresh new year has begun. This year is fresh, huh? And if you're setting new goals for your business, it's extremely difficult to reach them without the right people on your team. That's true. ZipRecruiter has transformed how you go about finding them. Look at these yokels we've got in here. They post your job to over... <laughs> They're not even listening. Let's do ZipRecruiter to get some people who listen, you know? <laughs> Love it. Love it just called Mukta and Elijah yokels. <laughs> They're here. They're try- <laughs> See, now Elijah's paying attention. Mukta was, she's just too polite to, to complain about it. Look at these, look at these, look at, look at these, look at these jokers, huh? We didn't find them on ZipRecruiter, did we? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Zip, I'm sure they'll be looking on ZipRecruiter soon since they'll want to leave this company. No, um, guys, guys. Guys, stay. Guys, stay. Don't worry about Lovett. I say this all the time. Don't guys, worry about him. Come on. Tommy and I are going to be great hey, bosses. ZipRecruiter hey. actively looks for the most qualified candidates and invites them to apply. No yokels allowed. No yokels allowed. They even review every application to identify the top candidates so you never miss a great match. What is a yokel? That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. You know, I don't want to say that no yokels are allowed. No wonder. Yokels welcome. Yokels. The best yokels will rise to the top through the ZipRecruiter process. It's true. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. Right now, Crooked Conversation listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. 
Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Crooked Convos. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Crooked Convos. One more time to try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Crooked Convos. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now, in your piece, you talk about the BARD program, so I'd love for you to help us understand why that's important. And I just spent some time at the Goucher uh, education program for uh, incarcerated people in Maryland, and I know you've been there too. So I'd love if you can talk about like those two or one of those two to help us add a little context about what we can do to change the education landscape for people who do have proximity with the criminal justice system. Yeah, you know, certainly our first goal should be to keep kids out of the school to prison pipeline, right? To do what we can uh, to have the supports in place so that students don't end up in prison. But we do know that there are folks who are incarcerated. And the question then becomes, what's the goal and what's going to happen next for those folks? And, you know, rightly, there are folks all over the country who've said to themselves, you know, what we really should do as part of the experience of being incarcerated is give folks access to educational programming so that when they get out and return to the community, they have a better chance to get a job, uh, to be successful uh, with their families and with the community. And we know the evidence is very clear that folks who get educational programs in prison are much less likely to return to prison. In fact, uh, Rand did a study that showed that if you got any kind of educational program, you were 43% less likely to return to prison. And we know that where students actually get a college degree, like the BARD program or like what Goucher is doing here in Maryland, uh, the recidivism rate can be even lower. I'm talking about 2 4 6% recidivism, that is folks returning to prison. Uh, again, because with that degree, they're able to get a better job, they're better prepared uh, to return successfully to the community. And, uh, you know, one of the things I think we should be doing more of as a society is investing in those educational opportunities. We know lots of folks who are incarcerated don't have a high school diploma, or if they do have a high school diploma, don't have um, necessarily the skills that they need. So we ought to be investing in GED programs and uh, academic supports so that folks are ready to do college work. And then we should invest in college programs and prisons so that folks can get a degree. You know, the conversation about prisons is interesting because we need to figure out like how to service people who are in them, but we also need to end the mass incarceration of people the way that we, the way that we do now. Do you have any thoughts about like how we, is there a way that we can scale the education uh, assistance for people who are incarcerated. Like, I don't know. I know a lot of programs. I don't know what it looks like at scale. And I, I wanted to know, like, from your perspective in Ed, is there something that the federal government can do to, or like states, or is there a way to scale this, or will it be a program by program, jail by jail solution? Yeah, there, there definitely is a way to scale it. You know, think about this context. It probably costs, depending on the state, something like $60,000 or more per year to have someone incarcerated. The cost of a year's college tuition, 
public higher education tuition for someone who's incarcerated. You know, depending on how long it takes them to complete the degree you're talking about, it's $5,000 a year, right? So we could actually save a ton of money as a country by making sure that folks get educational opportunities while incarcerated. So it's a smart investment. There are two ways we could do that that come to mind immediately. One is states could invest in prison education programs. That is, states could say to their uh, citizens who are incarcerated, we will pay for uh, public higher education courses so that you can get those credits as you go through um, prison. And when you leave, you're able to then um, much more likely be a contributing citizen. Um, the other strategy would be to change the federal law. Unfortunately, one of the things that happened in the mid-90s during the sort of rush towards mass incarceration is that Congress wrongly banned the use of Pell Grants, the federal assistance for low-income folks to go to college, uh, banned the use of Pell Grants for folks who are incarcerated. And uh, there's a small uh, pilot program called Second Chance Pell that's working with a subset of universities to put in place college prison programs on an experimental basis to demonstrate that that's a smart use of Pell dollars. Uh, but really what should happen is Congress should undo that, that ban uh, that was put in place. And there are bills now in Congress to do that. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't seem like they have a lot of momentum at the moment. So, John, do you know who's sponsoring these pieces of legislation or the names of them if people want to check them out and, and track them? Yeah, I mean, one that comes immediately to mind is the, is the REAL Act, which uh, Congressman Davis from Illinois is sponsoring. Um, but there have been efforts over the years to try to undo the mistake that Congress made in the mid-90s. Unfortunately, they just haven't moved forward. Now, another thing, uh, and as we wrap up, is... And only because this has been, I've like seen people talk about it and I wanted to know your take is there's always this conversation about standardized testing, like whether we are over testing kids, whether we should be doing any sort of testing, that this idea that testing takes away from the education of kids. Like, is there, a, I want to believe that there's like a more nuanced way to talk about the need to and desire to understand what kids learn and how we measure it. Can you like help us wade through that? Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I think um, it's important to have good information about the progress kids are making. And so in the new federal education law that President Obama signed in December of 2015, uh, there's a provision that requires that each year in third through eighth grade, there be a state assessment that gives everyone a sense of how kids are doing. And we need that in order to be able to really do civil rights enforcement, to know if African-American students, Latino students, low-income students, English learners, students with disabilities are getting what they need and making progress. That said, um, unfortunately, in some places, people then add on to that once a year, almost like checkup, if you will. People add on, and you know, you've seen this in schools, people add on, you know, well, since we want to make sure students do well on that, we'll do three more assessments that look just like that. And then we add on, we say, oh, well, that's, that's good, but we also want uh, assessment for our district purposes, or there's a favorite assessment 
of a new superintendent. So we're going to add that on. And so you do find some places where uh, there's a whole bunch of assessments, some of which are redundant or low quality. And that is something people are rightly concerned about. So one of the other provisions of the Every Student Succeeds Act was some flexibility around use of federal dollars so that uh, states and districts could use those dollars to do essentially an audit of the assessments they give and get rid of the ones that are redundant or low quality um, and really focus on quality instruction um, while ensuring that once a year we have that checkup to know how students are progressing. Got it. Well, I'll ask you uh, a question that I asked you before, which is uh, there are people who still feel like they have fought, they've been to the meetings, they've called, they whatever, and it hasn't changed. Are you are you more hopeful than you've, been, than you've been before? Are you less hopeful? Are you as hopeful? And what do you say to the people whose hope is waning? You know, I, I think about what you just did in Austin, you know, joining folks to organize to change how the community approaches policing. Right, we we know the problems are significant. Whether it's the problem of a lack of accountability when there's um, unjustified police violence, or the problem of uh, inequitable opportunity for low-income students and students of color in schools. So we know we have a lot of problems, um, but we can solve them. We can solve them at the community level if we're organized, if we put pressure on folks, if we keep demanding change. And, you know, I, I, I hear folks feeling tired, particularly in an environment where the administration seems um, committed to dismantling uh, civil rights enforcement and undermining uh, the civil rights of communities of color, of LGBTQ folks, of um, women, of um uh, people of, of the Muslim faith. So, you know, we, I get feeling tired, um, but we have to be resilient and persevere. And we have to keep in mind that, you know, as a country, we've had lots of struggle throughout our existence um, between forces that want to be true to the principles of democracy and equality of opportunity and forces that don't. That's always been a, a challenge of American society. Folks have had it far worse than we do right now. You know, I think about John Lewis and what he endured because of a faith that we could make America more true to the promise of equality. And we have to draw inspiration from John Lewis, from Harry Tubman, from W.E.B. Du Bois, and persevere and keep demanding the change that that we know is required to achieve a more just society. Well, thanks so much for joining us again, and I'm sure we'll have you back soon to give us an update on what's happening. Great. Thanks. Thanks for the opportunity to join you, and thanks for what you're doing with, with the pod. It's really uh, it's, it's an inspiring approach to social activism. Thanks for listening to this Crooked Conversation. I'm the host of Pod Save the People. Pod Save the People comes out every Tuesday. Make sure you check it out. And make sure that you stay tuned next week for another great conversation from the Crooked Media Network. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. 
but there's only one McCrispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.